0: our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today our guest is Jack Miller. And Jack is the president and founder of Geld Financial, a national private mortgage banking firm specializing in non-bank, private, and opportunistic commercial and residential investment mortgages. He's a seasoned private direct lender with a proven track record of overseeing a lending portfolio over $1 billion. He successfully built a real estate and mortgage portfolio from scratch, starting with limited resources and credit resulting in evaluation in the hundreds of millions of dollars. He's also proficient in the acquisition and resolution of distressed debt situations, and also an expert in tax lien acquisitions and strategic equipment leasing. So Jack, you've been in this business for quite some time. Welcome to the show. And thank you so much for being here.
1: My gray hair, show it. Hopefully, most of them, I love the business. Hopefully, most of them are attributable to age and not the business per se. But yes, I've been doing it. The truth is, I'm 61. I've done it my whole life since I was about 18 years old. So I've lived through and survived many economic cycles.
0: So how did you get into real estate and how did you get into this world starting at 18 years old?
1: It's a long story, but no, going to college wasn't an option for me. I started out when the rates were very high in the high teens one of the first mortgages I took as a real estate investor was fifteen and three quarters percent, and one thing led to another. Life—you don't plan on this journey; you just sort of follow it. It's been a, quite a journey, it's been a fantastic ride.
0: You said the first one that you took out was fifteen and three quarters percent.
1: Fifteen percent and three quarters—that's correct.
0: And we are talking about high percentage rates in today's market.
1: <laughs> That's correct.
0: So what led you to continuing to build up the business? What were some of the first things that you did first as you got into real estate and started to look at what you wanted to do in this space?
1: It sort of evolved. What really led me to build up the business is I really love working with our stakeholders, our borrowers, our partners, mortgage brokers all over the country. We operate pretty much a national platform. I think we're in 35 or 36 states, and we have active deals in probably 27 or 28 states. So we're talking to people all the time. And I have to tell you, even though our lending platform, we're not bank lenders, we're a lot more money than banks, they're so grateful and so thankful for the capital that we supply them. People are coming to us usually for one of two reasons. The first is what I call money to get them out of trouble. Maybe they have a problem that needs to be solved and their bank won't do it. Or they need to close the loan quick. They need money in a week, two weeks, and their banks are taking months, and we close it in a week. They're unbelievably thankful. And the other is to make money with our money, their opportunity capital. They're taking our capital, we're providing it, whether it be debt or equity, and they're doing something, buying something cheap or taking advantage of a situation and making money. And I'm constantly encouraged by, really, our our stakeholders are just absolutely fantastic. I really believe we're the luckiest company, the best people we deal with. And they give me the encouragement that I can't ever imagine stop doing what I'm doing.
0: So... Talk to us a little bit, because you've been in this business for quite some time now. And so you've seen several different market cycles and within the real estate. How has it changed when you started where it is now, especially in terms of being opportunistic and using borrowing from companies like yourself or also with people needing the money for gap funding? Like, how has this environment now changed in today's market?
1: On one hand, I could say it's changed dramatically, which it has. On the other hand, I could say it's kind of the same. And I sort of believe it. it's a crossroads of both. You know, certainly now the advent of social media, the internet has added a whole new dimension. When I first started, you couldn't do business all over the country without having offices there. You need to learn local markets. But essentially, people are people and opportunities are opportunities. The reality is people complained and people were thankful when rates were 15%. And when they were as low as 2 or 3%, people were complaining and were thankful. So. I think a lot of it's the same, and to be candid with you, there's a lot more hype because of the social media now, and it's become, in a lot of people's eyes, a short-term business. Oh, buy and flip very quickly, make money quick. I'm a believer in long-term real estate. It's a long-term investment, and we still have the same beliefs, and I still have the same beliefs at 61 than I did when I was 18. I just think the hype gets in the way of some people's thinking sometimes now. But I still think there's tremendous opportunities today. The truth is there's more opportunities today than there was a year ago or two years ago, by far. It's just up to people to take them. They have to change their mindset a little.
0: So what are some of the ways that you look at the deals that come across your desk to vet them in order to want to partner with people in order to help them with the gap funding or the opportunistic kind of partnership? What are some of the things that you look at (laughs) with your
1: partners? So we're hyper-focused on the collateral, not necessarily the individual. So like a bank is looking 80 or 90% on their credit score and how long they have a job and things like that. We don't look at that. We're not credit score driven at all. We're hyper-focused on the collateral and our basis. So banks talk about loan-to-value, 75, 80, 90, 65, pick a number. Banks talk about a loan-to-value. We don't talk about loan-to-value. We talk about a leverage point. So we're analyzing a property and saying, what do we think the value of that property is today? Not what the borrower is paying for it. And how much are we lending or investing based on that? So we look at things different from our perspective. We don't have a bank regulator breathing down our neck. So we can do things that are more common sense than a bank would.
0: So what are some of the things that stand out as some of the red flags or maybe a riskier type of opportunity for you guys to maybe dive into a little bit more, potentially pass on something that comes across your desk?
1: You know, a lot of people buy into the dream and it's a good dream that they're going to pay X for a property and in a year it'll be worth X plus 25% or the rents are X and they're going to paint it and they're going to get more rents. And it goes from industry to industry. Used to be office, retail, it just cycles around. We stay disciplined to not buying into that hope and dream. Because sometimes it's reality, but sometimes it's just hope and a dream. So we try to stay focused on what the real value is today and what we think the value will be in the future. Anything looks good on a spreadsheet. I've never seen a projection that that looked bad. But you have to look deeper than the spreadsheet. And the pros stand out very quickly when you're speaking to them. We can usually identify someone, I don't want to say almost instantly, but literally almost instantly. You can identify a good project and a good deal and a good operator. And we jump on those opportunities. Usually in the very first call, we can tell if it's going to be a good deal and we'll quote it out on the very first call.
0: What signals a good deal or what? are some of the key things that you look for that help you identify whether or not it will be a good deal or not.
1: It's location, it's price point. They're the two big things. How realistic the expectations of are the borrower or partner. We'd rather see slow and steady than fast and foolish. And the reality is there's a lot of fast and foolish in the market now. We like the steady and slow kind of operators and markets.
0: And typically, when you're looking at the underwriting, what are you seeing on average right now in terms of increases or uh, projections from different asset classes?
1: Well, it's constantly changing. Obviously, office is getting beaten up in certain segments. Warehouse and flex are doing good. Self-storage is doing good, but self-storage is starting to soften up a little bit. So it's constantly moving. And we invest in all asset classes. We have retail, we have office, we have self-storage. Anything you think of, we have because we're looking at the basis of it, of that particular product. I think it'll all be good. Look, the way I look at it, I'm looking at it and saying, what's this property going to be worth in 30 years, 20 or 30 years? And that's what we try to do, project when we enter a deal, not in six months. Who the heck knows? Things happen and you can't execute a plan or something happens with COVID or you can't control interest rates. But we're trying to look at something and say, what's this property going to be worth in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years? What's the population going to be of the country, of this city, the county, the state? And then we can say, we think it'll have value or it won't have value. But we can't make short term predictions. The world's full of pundits and Twitter is full of pundits. They're just guessing. And we don't do that. We were active during COVID. We're active in all markets because we take a very long term approach. Ultimately, we believe that the United States will be here in 30, 40, 50, 100 years. And we're betting on the United States and we're betting on certain geography to become more densely populated.
0: And what about in terms of the operators? What are some of the things that signify good operators to you as they come over and bring different opportunities and deals over to work with your company as well?
1: It's sort of hard to generalize because sometimes you find someone who is brand new, but they're very street smart and they know how to put a deal together and we love working with them. But other people are new and just make foolish mistakes. So it's really hard to identify. But generally, people who are looking to protect our capital, when an investor paints us too rosy of a scenario, and everything's going to be great, and the rents are going to go up, I'm not going to have any problems, I'm not going to have any delinquent tenants, I'm going to find contractors, a bad operator, someone who thinks, I don't want to say a bad operator. We get nervous when someone who takes a property, they say, we're going to increase rents and decrease expenses. They always know more than the current owner. And usually it doesn't work that way. In our world, everything takes longer, everything's more expensive, it just takes time. So we'd rather deal with a realistic
0: operator we love hosting this show when we started this podcast we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves now we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about serving you our listener at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. So I know that you didn't necessarily start with all these different asset classes. As you started to grow the business further and further, how did you decide which asset classes you wanted to continue to continuously add into your portfolio as well and uh, provide those services as well and not just focus on a couple few?
1: I'd love to tell you this was thought out and it was discussed and met on and we did all kinds of studies and we're really smart guys, but that's not the case. It was all very opportunistic. Someone called with a good deal. I said, okay, let's do it. And someone called with another good deal. We said, okay, let's do it. So a lot of it, and it sounds bad to say we're opportunists. People think of us as terrible, but the truth is most humans are opportunists. So if we have a deal that makes sense and it's within our bandwidth, we don't do land. We don't do development deals because we don't understand them. That we can't understand. But if something's within our bandwidth, If it sounds good, we'll jump on it. So it wasn't planned or thought out. It was just someone will call you with a deal. And it seems like a pretty good deal. What's the downstroke on it? How bad can it be? And we are always looking at the downstroke more than the upstroke. Because the truth is, I ask most people, and I don't know your background, but if people have parents who bought a home in the US at one point, I said, find out how much your parents paid for their home, their first home. And what year was it? And my parents bought a home for, I think it was $11,000 in like 1960 or
0: something.
1: $11,000. I think so. The home now is worth like $800,000. So if the truth is, if they would have paid $10,000 or $14,000, now my father probably couldn't afford $14,000, but from an investment point of view, all these years later, does it matter? It doesn't really matter. So we're bullish on the general economy. We try not to get involved with the cycles. And that comes through when you're speaking to people, comes through very easy when you're speaking to people.
0: So typically, do you find that investors go to the banks first and then if they're unable to get traditional bank financing, then they'll come over and then they'll work with your company? Or is it they're looking at both opportunities at the same time?
1: Well, on the debt side, if someone can go to a bank, they should go to a bank. Banks a lot cheaper than us. But half our customers come to us for opportunity. They're making money with our money and they need to execute quick. So, and coincidentally, about another half come to us because they're in trouble and they need rescue capital. They can't go to a bank. But we do a ton of business that people take us out with bank loans that are perfect credit, perfect real estate. The banks just can't close in time and they need to close in a week, two weeks, three weeks, something like that. They'd rather pay us a higher price premium because an execution and then refinance with a bank. So if someone should go to a bank first, 100%, if they have the time and everything is in order, 100%, there's a lot of lower cost providers out there than us.
0: For the risk capital aspect of it, what are typical like terms or what are some of the things that people should be aware of or things, whether or not it would make sense to go to a risk capital, utilize some type of risk capital?
1: We're generally interest only. We'll give someone whatever term they need, even though we're generally short term lenders and some people pay us off in a month or two months. We do deals a year, two years, three years, five years. Believe it or not, even though we're short term lenders, I think we have, I'm going to say, 44, 46 deals on the books more than 15 years. So we're fine if people want to keep extending it, we're fine keeping them on our books. So really, we back into the terms based on the needs of the borrower.
0: And how does the opportunistic capital work on the other side of the business?
1: In terms of JV equity side? Yes. Oh, so we put up capital for JV equity deals, for distressed debt deals, for all sorts of deals. So people come to us to identify a really a good deal, not something they just went through a hundred listings and found one. It has to be a really good deal. And we will put up the capital for it and we structure them as JV equity deals. and we do that all the time. We love that business.
0: So for you, Jack, how has it been being in the business over four decades? And how have you seen your business grow from when you first started to where it is today?
1: It's a lot different. Today, we're a second generation company. My children are in the business, which is a joy working with. They give me strength and me energy and keep me motivated to get up a little earlier than them and work hard. People are people. Technology's changed. A lot's changed, but a lot's the same. There's a saying I have. It says, the only thing you can be sure of in life is change. You might as well adapt to it. A lot of people don't like change and they resist change. And I think that's a mistake. I think people need to embrace change. It's not always good, but you need to embrace it. And the reality is, in this business, you always need to be pivoting. I could tell you we're a 33-year-old company, and we are, but I could also tell you, in some ways, we're a three-month-old company, because at each economic cycle, you have to pivot to what works. What worked 10 years ago doesn't work today. So you're constantly evaluating and reevaluating and pivoting every day to what works.
0: So then what's next for you, Jack? What's your next focus?
1: I don't know. We're very opportunistic. We're always looking for deals. We're speaking to people. We have a fantastic team. We're growing. We have a whole team that speaks to people all over the country every day of the week. And we're looking for deals that make sense. So whether it be distressed debt, we don't know what, there's so many influences that are beyond my control. I could spend forever in trying to analyze what's going to happen with rates. Are there going to be a lot of defaults, or a lot of maturities? People are talking about this maturity wall. We can go through this forever and ever and ever. We have no clue. Nobody knows. Just like no one predicted COVID. I don't spend my time on that stuff. I really don't. I spend my time on what deals are out there that I'm comfortable with closing now and always looking for opportunities. We're prepared to do note-on-note financing. We're prepared for debt-earned possession financing or provide equity in restructuring deals. If it comes, it comes, but it's coming. The question is how much comes. So we try to keep our fingers in enough things that we can use our capital, deploy it, in many different areas, depending on the needs of the real estate investors.
0: So, Jack, how do you guys protect yourself in the event of a downturn market?
1: It's a couple things. It's always collateral. I said in the beginning, it's always collateral. It's not necessarily the individual. It's low leverage and ample capital. Leverage, you need to keep low and you need to keep a lot of cash, which is maybe contrary to a lot of people because a lot of investors want high leverage. But the lower the leverage and the more cash you have, you will be fine. You can withstand a downturn. Not only withstand it, you'll be able to capitalize on it and make money on it.
0: When you say you should have ample amount of cash, what does that typically mean? Because that could mean different things to different people.
1: It does. It's property by property. But a property or a partnership have to be able to withstand tenants who aren't paying unnecessary repairs banks calling their loans, everything. A partnership needs to be able to withstand that. And it's different things. But we look at every property and we pinpoint when we look at a deal and say, how much should this deal have in cash reserves? And we like to see building cash reserves. We like it to grow. We're very into safety here.
0: So Jack, how has real estate investing impacted your life?
1: It's been unbelievable. Honestly, when I was 16 or 17, I never in a million years thought I would be doing this. No one knew me. I happened to be dyslexic. And growing up in the 1960s, you weren't diagnosed as dyslexic. You were diagnosed as brain damaged. And I grew up in the Philadelphia school system. Nothing, no knocks on it, that. But they didn't have to deal with me. So really, my childhood going through school was not fun. It was just terrible. I try to block it out. But when I got into the real world and I could do things on my own and I could make a deal and talk to people and be creative, I blossomed. So my life has been real estate and finance has been unbelievable to me. I feel like the luckiest guy in the world between real estate, finance and marrying the right spouse. I married the right woman. The best things in my life. It's been fantastic.
0: So what is the one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started?
1: I don't know, really, it's not that much changed Hold long term. I wish I would have done more. Not that I wish, we could all wish, but you look back at the properties that you sold and because we're capital providers, we're partners in a lot of properties and we sold or our partners sold so much and I wish we wouldn't have sold, I wish we'd still be involved in those deals. I think generally selling is a mistake. But I realized, and I've had to sell some stuff because I raised three kids, had to pay for their schooling and college, and you have to live. I realized you have to sell more. But again, I would have bought more. I just bought more real estate, bought more real estate, bought it, buy it, and forget about it.
0: And what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing?
1: I think they get up when they're knocked down. I see a lot of people who have failures and who walk away. And I, by the way, I've had tons of failures. I've had tons of embarrassments. I've made a lot of podcasts and videos on my all the stuff that's going wrong. I've been taken outside, beaten up, black eyes, black nose, broken ribs, terrible. But you have to bounce back up and you have to learn from it and keep going. So I think in real estate, you see a lot of people who have that determination. And I love that. I just love that when someone is just so determined, they're up Saturday night thinking about it, working, sending them emails, texts. I'm a 24 seven guy. So I'm literally on my phone and talking to people and emailing all the time and texting. I love that. And in real estate, you can have that creativity. It's almost an art form. And a lot of people just have that. And I think that's fantastic.
0: And Jack, where can listeners find out more about you and what you're doing?
1: You can check us out at geltfinancial.com anytime or look us up. Uh, We're on all the social medias. Uh, we have a very active YouTube channel. Try to be as many places as we can.
0: Awesome. Jack, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. An absolute pleasure.
0: Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast today brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We'd really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review.